Hey, and welcome to another episode of Burning Questions. My name is Melvin Robinson. I am the, the I am the director of communications and media for the Mississippi Cannabis Trade Association, and you are here uh, watching the state's uh, cannabis podcast. Uh, we record and uh, do a simulcast on Facebook and YouTube every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Um, and you can also catch the next the episode in audio form on all your favorite DSPs the next day or Wednesday that morning. Uh, Google, Amazon, uh, Spotify, Apple, all of those. So uh, what we are going to do, we are going to get right into it. And of course, we are going to speak about the Mississippi Cannabis Expo uh, put on by Counter One. It is happening this Thursday, July the 7th through 9th at the Biloxi Gulfport Convention Center. It's going to be located at 2350 Beach Boulevard in Biloxi, Mississippi. They'll have exhibits, live speaker sessions, networks, uh, networking giveaways, and more. You can register at counter1.com, and you can also call 833-422-6626, as well as email maureen at counter1.com. We will be there as the MSCTA. Can't wait to meet other people that are in the Cannabis industry in Mississippi. Yeah, uh, we're also going to do a little uh, meet and greet, a little social mixer uh, that night on the 7th at 630 at 131 Lemuse in Biloxi. Uh, make sure you come out for that. It's completely free and open to the public. Can't wait to see you there. And also, if you want to come to Counter One, you can use the MSCTA discount code, MSCTA2022 at counter1.com. You can get a percentage off. Uh, that's only for my very close and personal friends, so I'm offering that to you all. But yeah, we're going to. Uh, you can use that discount code MSCTA2022, and you can also uh, get some little bit of money off on your ticket. Also, do we have it here? Grow Generation. They are one of the largest hydroponic suppliers in the country with 63 retail and distribution centers. They carry and sell thousands of products such as organic nutrients and soils, advanced lighting technology, and state-of-the-art hydroponic equipment used by commercial and home growers. They have strategic partnerships with the biggest brand names in the industry and offer a direct-to-farm delivery service along with equipment financing. And they have just moved into Jackson, Mississippi on Industrial Drive. Make sure you go by there and give them a, a look, see what they have for all your growing needs. All right. So we have finished that part. Now what we are going to do, we are going to bring on tonight's guest. And we have him here in the flesh. And what we always do on Burning Questions, we allow our um, guests to always introduce themselves. And if you would. Hey, Melvin, thanks for having me on today. I'm Lee Yancey. I'm a state representative uh, from Rankin County and chairman of the Drug Policy Committee. And that's how I came to be involved with the Mississippi uh, Medical Cannabis Act of 2022. All right, great. Uh, really glad I could have you on, Representative Yancey. Uh, you have done a lot of great work so far with the MMCA. I'm glad that um, we have supporters in the legislature about it. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on. So my pleasure. I'll, I'll also mentioned this coming weekend, I'll be a, uh, I'll be on a panel at Cana One down in Biloxi on Saturday morning. So if anyone's there, be sure and check that out. Um, I'll be on there with, with several others, but 
Uh, we'll be telling the story about probably probably a similar story to what you'll hear today about how the Medical Cannabis Act became law in Mississippi. And thank you for that. See you down there. We'll have to get uh, get some breakfast or get some lunch or some dinner or something. We can sit down and talk and everything like that. But yeah, yeah. Um, can't wait to see you down at Canada One. And yeah, so we're going to just get right into it. The MMCA. Um, how did your involvement start with with it? So, to, to make a long story short, maybe. I was in the Senate from 2008 to 2012 and, and ran for state treasurer and came up short. And so I was I was out of the legislature for eight years because I waited for an open seat before I ran again. And so this time the seat came open in the House. So I ran for the House seat and I won. Uh, but I was not a chairman. And so anytime there was an open chairmanship, I would let the speaker know I was interested uh, in, in hopes that he would appoint me to a chairmanship. And and uh, finally, one day he did call me into his office and he says, Lee, I have a chairmanship for you, but I don't know if you want it. I said, I want it. What is it? He said, it's drug policy. I thought, well, this was January of 2021 and the ballot initiative had just passed a few months before in November of 2020. And I thought, well, at least medical marijuana is off the table and I won't have to deal with that. But as you know, and everyone knows, the Supreme Court threw it out on a technicality and and the medical cannabis uh, bill fell right back into my lap as chairman of drug policy. And I was assigned the responsibility of uh, presenting a house position, uh, negotiating with Senator Blackwell in the Senate position and trying to put together a bill that would be acceptable by both the house and the Senate and get signed by the governor. And so uh, that's how in a nutshell, how I got started uh, working on it uh, probably about a year ago. Okay, great, great, great. And yeah, um, a lot of people, you know, we always talk about the Supreme Court, you know, throwing out Initiative 65 because of the technicality. Uh, you know, wasn't the best day of mine, I can say. Uh, it was it was very hectic that day. We got a lot busy, but we do have a program now. And um, I remember, you know, uh, the discussions about the program and everything, you know, on the house side, on the Senate side, tell us about that whole process, how that was, because a lot of people were waiting for a special session and everything. And, you know, the special session didn't come. So this was happening actually during the legislative session, the regular session. T tell me how the feeling was around the Capitol around that time about the MMC. Well, if you'll remember in the uh, session in 2020, Senator Blackwell had a bill that, um, that eventually passed the Senate, I think, by one vote, and then it didn't even get brought up in the House. And so fast forward, you know, a year, and you have me working on a different bill with Senator Blackwell, and he, he changed it an awful lot. And um, I got involved, and we're trying to, we're trying to find a way to make this uh, medicine available to those who had debilitating conditions who were uh, thus far, only being prescribed opioids or other things that were that were more addictive and, and that were causing severe side effects. And, and as you and all your listeners know, we have an opioid problem across our country. And we have uh, those who try to substitute fentanyl in with whatever the opioid is. Uh, maybe, maybe it's cheaper. Maybe it gives a little higher uh high and make someone addicted faster, but oftentimes it kills people who take it because you just don't know 
you know, the tiniest little bit of fentanyl will kill you. So any alternative to opioids is good. And the more that we can lessen the use of opioids, uh, particularly on the streets of Mississippi, the safer our children are going to be and the safer everyone who, who you know, takes a, a Valium is going to be or takes some pill for anxiety or whatever it is. And so I started working with Senator Blackwell. We tried to put a, a bill together that would uh, help those with debilitating conditions, but would not just be uh, putting it out on the street. And uh, we were basically told if we if we reached a, an agreement that the governor would call a special session. And so, as you know, uh, in September, I think September 24th of last year, we reached an agreement, but uh, the governor wanted it to, to have uh, some other things in it and, and wanted it to have less of some things in it. And so we made some of the changes that he asked for, but we didn't make all the changes. And, and uh, you know, it, it basically ended up going all the way to January, not having a special session. But we had done all of that work and that allowed us to tweak it because we continued making changes to the bill from September all the way to January. And by the time we got to January, uh, we were really, really close. And so um, by about the 20th, somewhere in there, the 23rd, I don't remember what day it actually was, it passed the Senate and then it passed the House. Passed the Senate by over 90% and passed the House, I think, by 88%. Uh, which those were just overwhelming numbers. If you'll remember the year before, it passed the Senate by one vote and didn't even get brought up in the House. Yeah. So you see how far we came in just one year. And, uh, you know, and it's all about, um, you know, presenting this uh, in a limited way for those who are hurting the most and, and having the right testing and the right research, the right tracking on the program, uh, so that law enforcement can can figure out what's what, what's within the scope of the program, and, and what's not. And uh, so we put together a bill that that finally, uh, you know, everyone was pretty much on board with. Okay. okay. Um, the special session never came up. Was, was can you speak about that or? Well, I mean, the governor just was never comfortable with our with our bill. Uh, you know, he. You know, he wanted a, a smaller dosage uh, and, you know, there were a number of things. And, and we felt like a person who, you know, a person who was really sick needed that dosage. Uh, you know, we, we didn't want a higher dosage just for the sake of a higher dosage, but we wanted to uh, leave that amount in the hands of uh, the practitioners who were recommending the patients you know, to be a part of the medical cannabis program. And um, so, you know, we didn't want to limit someone. We didn't want someone to have to take, uh, you know, two or three times, you know, what they normally would in order to get the same result. Uh, if they were suffering from extreme pain or let's say it's a child who had seizures or something to that effect, if we had the dosage so small that it really wouldn't stop their seizure, then what's the point? And if you have to give them, you know, one, one and a half or two gummies instead of one or half of one, you know, you, you're basically just making them pay twice as much to get the same amount of dosage. So, um, but, you know, I tell people all the time that uh, within, within the thinking of this program, there are those who are on the hope side and there are those who are on the fear side. And 
I'm on the hope side. I'm very hopeful that this medicine will be there to help people who are suffering. Those who are on the fear side look at it as uh, a continuation of a drug problem we have across our country, uh, law enforcement uh, problems, uh, you know, crime problems, and we're cognizant of all those things. And so that's why we, we built the program in such a way that, you know, everything has to be happened in the state of Mississippi. Everything has to be grown in Mississippi. It's indoor growing only. Uh, you know, we did not allow home grow. Uh, you know, we wanted to start with a small program that could expand rather than start with something that was just so wide open and then there was no way to, no way to pull it back. And so uh, just wanted to, to let people kind of get used to it gradually mm-hmm. and to see that there was uh, nothing to fear by this by this drug being available for those who had cancer and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and epilepsy and on and on. You know, we wanted we wanted this to be an alternative uh, for them to get some relief from their suffering. And I would imagine because, uh, you know, you were talking about you, you have the hope side or you have the fear side. I would imagine you had to explain what you were trying to do to a nice amount of people while this was going on. Well, to everyone. And I tell people, you know, I don't have much skin left. I mean, I've, I've been in so many scrapes and, um, you know, it, it seemed like there was opposition from, from day one. And, you know, it was hard for anyone to believe that this could be medicine. And I said, well, we would be the 37th state to have a medical cannabis program. You know, pretty soon all 50 states are going to have it pretty soon. Uh, the nation, the, the feds are going to recognize that this has medicinal value. And, uh, you know, were it not for politics, that would have already happened. So, you know, I think it's important to try and help those who are suffering and have a compassionate, uh, you know, this is a compassionate reason to, to help people is to, to help ease their suffering. So how what, hard was it, you know, you were whipping up votes and you have, uh, you know, like you said, you have over 90 percent, over 80 percent of, you know, the Senate and the House voting for it. What do you think caused that shift in people to change the way they thought about it? I think it was a different bill than the one that Senator Blackwell had presented uh, the year before in the Senate. And so I think there were you had uh, much more with uh, tracking programs uh, on on the on the plant itself, all the way from the time it was planted as a seed until it was harvested and made into medicine and, and sent to a dispensary and then sold to the public. Having a seed to sell tracking program on it uh, lets you know where the product is uh, in every uh, every type of every every moment of growth throughout the process mm-hmm. uh, from the time it's sold or destroyed. Um, the fact that you know you had to have one of 28 debilitating conditions to get it and we did not we did not include uh, some of the some of the conditions that are real but they are easier to I won't say fake but easier to you know I've got I've got anxiety so could you give me a certificate to get some I've got insomnia I can't sleep you know and, and cannabis would help with both of those but we wanted there to be uh, diseases that there was an objective way to measure uh, what someone had that was wrong with them, that this would help alleviate. Uh, 
rather than a subjective, uh, I don't feel good, so can I have some of that? And, you know, those, we, we left a way for other conditions to be added in the future uh, through the Department of Health, and we could also address that legislatively if we need to. But again, starting with a smaller program and letting it grow gradually and letting people get used to it uh, was the way we chose to go. And it was passed, and uh, Governor Reeves signed that uh, on February the 2nd, 2022. So now we have a program, and you know, as you know, recently the Department of Revenue, they have started accepting dispensary applications. Um, how have you seen everything progressing so far? How do you feel about it? Well, it's interesting to watch the birth of a program, really. I mean, you see, uh, there was, this was, this was a brand new program. It was, um, you know, nothing about this program has been uh, rushed. I mean, there may, there may be still, you know, 10% of the population, 10 to 20% of the population who uh, really just doesn't want it at all. But, but we have been very, very thorough uh, with the way that we wrote the bill. Uh, the Department of Health, Department of Revenue have both drawn up regulations uh, that are, you know, very, very, uh, you know, strict in some cases. And there may be some things we want to look at, you know, next session to clarify. Uh, but, you know, the uh, Department of Health had, you know, 120 days before they had to start taking applications. And the Department of Revenue had 150 days. So we gave the growers and cultivators a head start, if you will, because, you know, there's, everything has to be grown and processed and tested in Mississippi. So, you know, if we had them all getting a license the same day, there would be nothing to sell into the, in the dispensary until it was grown. So, um, you know, we, we gave them a 30 day head start. Arguably, we could have given them a 60 or 90 day head start. But, you know, we wanted to, to, to make it to where there would be something to sell. Uh, when they open. I don't anticipate there being products available until probably November or December of this year. Same, uh, same. But, but, but it's, you know, it's, everything's got to be tested for purity, for potency. We want to make sure there's no fentanyl in the product, that, you know, no, no insecticides or pesticides, no lead or other metals, uh, you know, no mold. Uh, and, you know, by having it tested, uh, you'll know that what what you're getting is is pure and it's the right dosage. And, you know, let's say that, that there are people who don't need to take a, a whole gummy and they want to take half a gummy. Well, you cut that gummy in half or you just break it in half with your hand. And, you know, how do you know that there's exactly the same amount of THC in this half as there is in this half? Well, you got to have a way to, to test that and they have to have a process to, to make it so that, uh, what you're getting is what you think you're getting, Yeah, you know? And so, um, you know, we wanted to just really uh, make sure that this was treated uh, as much as possible the way medicine is. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. So we have the bill now, everything's going along. And you say you wanted to address some things, you know, next year, what are some of those things you all are looking to address or to clarify? So we're making a list. We've got a running list uh, of things that we want to address. And some of those things we are working, uh, working with Department of Health and Department of Revenue now, just, you know, the way that they have written up their regulations uh, in some cases is, is a little farther than the bill intended for them to go. And in some cases, they thought of things that we didn't that are good. 
And so uh, we're just kind of watching this process. Uh, we've got lawyers <clears throat> who are looking at the regulations. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I don't mean to alarm anybody, but, um, you know, we have CBD stores all over our state and there's absolutely no testing or regulation that's, that's going on that I know of. And, uh, you know, you don't know what you're getting when you go in there and you think you're getting CBD oil. And, you know, I've heard stories of the Bureau of Narcotics uh, going into those places and testing CBD oil. And in some cases, uh, it was just olive oil. Uh, there were some that had uh, fentanyl in it and, and some, you know, it was a, a mixture of this, that and the other and not not too much CBD. So, you know, it would be good, I think, to try and regulate our CBD store products in the same way that our medical cannabis is regulated and have it tested so that people are actually buying what they think they're buying. And so that that is something that is, you know, similar to this industry that we're talking about. Uh, but we want to, you know, we want to make sure that our, that people are safe when they go and buy these products. So did they like say, for instance, when like, you know, they, they found like these things like olive oil or fentanyl, like, did they like report this like to the media or did they do anything to this, to this area where it was bought specifically or anything like that? Well, it was the Bureau of Narcotics, so I, I would imagine that they did something to that particular store. But, um, you know, in, in the interest of public safety, uh, like I said, I heard I heard this through the grapevine and it wasn't there when it happened. But, um, you know, I'm continuing to to try and try and work with uh, law enforcement and to try and um, help them because they're, they're they're confused through this process. You know, they don't know. Uh, you know, if they stop someone, they've got to determine, uh, are they part of the medical cannabis program? Do they have a card that is valid? Do they have less than the allowable amount? Uh, you know, and then if it's, if it's someone who has a card, but they forgot their card, you know, is there, you know, how do we deal with that? And, um, you know, you're not allowed to use the product until you get home. You can't use it in the car. So, um, you know, law enforcement is, is trying to figure out what can they enforce and what can they not enforce. And we're trying to work with them on, on that as well. Okay. And look, if y'all ever need any assistance, the MSCTA is right here for y'all. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we've had uh, a founder. She actually testified to the public uh, welfare and health community, uh, community before, so... Yeah, um, and also just working with other legislators and everything, you know, and we appreciate everything you all do. So, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so, um, Counter One's coming up, and you were talking about the panel you're going to be doing. What was that panel again, one more time? Well, the part I'm talking about is how the bill became a law in Mississippi, and there's also some people that are testers that are going to be on that panel talking about what they're testing for and I guess the processes they use to to test it and everything. And, is that uh, Steep Hill? Yeah. yeah, Steep Hill is doing it. Yeah, yeah, Cliff. Yeah, Cliff. Yeah, so Cliff yeah. is going to come on the show a little bit later. Good. Yeah, yeah, love Cliff. Love You'll him. enjoy having Cliff on. He's he knows his stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, so uh, we're going to start wrapping it up right now. What's the things you want people to know or be assured of about the program and uh, like things like that? You just want to make 
sure people have on their mind when, you know, they sure. might get a medical card or open up a business or something. Yeah, well, everything that you need to know, really, you can find on the Department of Health and Department of Revenue website. As far as if you're interested in the business side of it, if you're interested in um, how to how to get a medical cannabis card, I think you can find that on the Department of Health website. Basically, you would go to a, uh, a practitioner. We define that as a medical doctor, a nurse practitioner, uh, an ophthalmologist, opt- excuse me, optometrist in the case of glaucoma, and a, and a physician's assistant. All who, within the scope of their practice, would be able to certify that you have one of those 28 debilitating conditions. And they're also listed on the Department of Health website. Uh, and, you know, basically they would they would determine that and certify you for a medical cannabis card. I think you would go, I think all this is going to happen online as far as applying for your card. You'll have to have a face-to-face visit with your, with your doctor, but then, um, you know, you would have to uh, apply for your card through the Department of Health. And, um, you know, they eat all the practitioners, doctors, they have to be registered with the Department of Health. Um, so they have a, a registry, uh, you know, they've got a process in which you can do that. So, you know, if, if people have questions, I would refer you to the Department of Health website. There's also a link to the bill. Uh, if, you, if, you, if some nights you can't sleep and you're up, you know, that will really help you go to sleep. Uh, <laughs> it's reading that bill because it's, uh, you know. It's I mean, exhaustive. It, it, it 400 is. pages. Yeah. But, the, but, the, but the first 100 pages are the most important. And, uh, you know, you'll learn a lot about the legislative process. And, uh, you know, because we had to think of everything. The first, you know, three or four sections are uh, definitions and how the program would work. And then you kind of move into how it affects uh, employers, uh, how it affects municipalities and counties, uh, what the taxes are, uh, where the dispensaries can be located. you know, on and on. And we, we had so many people with different viewpoints who were, who were firing off questions about what this bill was going to do and what it would look like when it was finished. And by the time we got to January, I think we had answered uh, the questions of, of every interested person. Uh, I won't say everyone was 100% on board, but they knew the answer to their questions. Yeah. And we did our best to accommodate everyone. You know, we gave the cities and counties an opt-out. A lot of people aren't happy that we gave them an opt-out. Uh, but there is a way for the for the citizens to have a reverse referendum and opt back in. So, you know, if, the, if that's what the people want, uh, we, put the, we put the government there closest to the people, and we believe, believe in home rule. So if you don't like it, you can get the, you can get the signatures and, and have them do a referendum. And then you can, you know, overturn what the board of supervisors or the or the aldermen put in place, and and some of them were votes of like three to two. You know, they weren't all unanimous votes, and and many of them they tell me you know they're just waiting to see what the regulations were, and you know they haven't uh, decided to be you know out of the program forever. Uh, but they wanted to have a chance to see how it would work in other places yeah. before it happened. So, and I understand that. And most of them are operating out of fear uh, because they're afraid of what what they're opening the door to. 
And so, uh, you know, it's very important to me that, that this be rolled out, no pun intended, as a medical program uh, that is limited in scope to those with debilitating conditions. Uh, and so that people can see that we can responsibly uh, make this drug available to those who are suffering. And uh, that, that's what I really tried to do was to have a, a, a big heart and to have compassion for those who were going through extremely difficult times. Melvin, two years ago, I got diagnosed with throat cancer. I had, uh, I'd had a sore throat and an earache for 10 months and had been treated for viral, bacterial, fungal, anything, everything you could think of. I went, I had a scope done down my esophagus to see if I needed to have my esophagus stretched. Uh, they said, no, it looked fine. And that was the problem. My cancer was on the base of my tongue and it was under the skin. So there was nothing that you could see on the surface that looked like anything was wrong. And finally, it was determined, you know, I finally had a, a biopsy of an area that looked a little puffy and um, it turned out to be squamous cell carcinoma, uh, you know, throat cancer. And so um, throughout the process of chemo and radiation, uh, I began to lose weight as everybody does and had lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 pounds, a little, maybe a little more, and was told if I lost any more weight, I'd have to have a feeding tube. And, you know, I don't, I don't want a feeding tube. I'm yeah. like, I'm a normal human being. I don't want a whole cut in my stomach and, and be fed, fed that way. And so I did not know about medical cannabis. It was not legal at the time. Uh, but if I knew then what I know now, and this had been a time in the future when it was legal, and using uh, medical cannabis, whether it was eating chocolate or it was eating a gummy or if it was uh whatever it was, I, I would have done it so that I could have an appetite and not lose so much weight that I have to get a feeding tube. And there are many people who are just wasting away uh, because they can't eat. And one of the, one of the things that uh, medical cannabis does, is it gives you an appetite. So, you know, this is, this is something that I'm um, very sensitive to that people are suffering and, the choices they are being given to treat their suffering are not good choices. We've talked about the opioids already. Um, you know, we've talked about uh, people who are in nursing homes, who are uh, who are in hospice care, who are dying, and we know that they are dying and they have weeks or days to live, and they can be in an opioid-induced coma where they don't have any quality time with their families or they can use medical cannabis and it be a lot uh, gentler on their body and they can be wide awake and, and, and spend their last moments uh, with their loved ones rather than being in a coma. So, you know, it, it, it makes sense to me and it made sense to 90% of the house and Senate, you know, and, and I think that once people see the good that this can do, you'll begin to see hearts change and you'll see more people move from the fear category to the hope category. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And thank you for sharing that with us. Like, thank you. And, and, you know, I knew the story and you shared it before, but just want to make sure, you know, there's always fairness to it. So people will understand where others are coming from, you know? Yes, sir. So, um, representative Yancey, thank you again for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate it.
Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and I, I will be seeing you in Biloxi. We're, we're going to have to sit down and, and have some dinner or something. I'll look for you Saturday morning. Oh yeah, oh yeah. All right, well, this has right. been another episode of Burning Questions. I am Melvin Robinson, Director of Communications and Media for the Mississippi Cannabis Trade Association. Don't forget to follow and like this. You can watch us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on Facebook or YouTube. You can also catch this on all your favorite DSPs the following morning. That's Google, that's Apple, that's Spotify, all of those. And again, burn your questions. Talk to y'all later.